And we don't know. We only have about 20 seconds. But the protesters at the U.N. General Assembly uh, went to Times Square with a big mural. No green colonialism land back now. What are you hoping to see from the Biden administration? Well, we want the Tamarack mine stopped as well as the mine out in Nevada, Thacker Pass. But they're looking at trading our sacred Sandy Lake where our people died by the hundreds by the hundreds, our sacred lake for a for a you know a Tesla mine, and we need to quit. What we need to do is reduce our consumption, get efficient, and not try try to pretend that you know some new green colonialism is going to change things. Uh, there are many choices, like infrastructure for people, not for pipeline companies, and not for Elon Musk. And that's what we want. We want to protect the water. Thank you so much for taking a look at us in Minnesota, fifth of the world's water. It's worth protecting, and, and certainly we are not criminals. Winona LaDuke, Winona longtime indigenous activist and author who lives and works on the White Earth Indian Reservation, founded the White Earth Land Recovery Project, her first novel, Last Standing Woman, republished in a 25th anniversary edition. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. You are tuned in to KBOO Portland. 90.7 on your FM dial. KBU Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBU in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBU Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. KBU's Board of Directors meets on the fourth Monday of the month at 6 p.m. This month's meeting will be held at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue in Portland and online through a public video conference. Masks and proof of vaccination are required at this time. A public link and phone number to attend the meeting virtually can be found on our website at kboo.fm. Please visit our website to verify if a meeting is being held. KBOO turns 55 this year. We're planning a birthday block party to celebrate 55 years of broadcasting community radio. On Saturday, September 23rd, from noon until 10 p.m., KBOO will transform a block near its studios into a festival area. Activities will include live music, station tours, food, beverages, vendors, and fun. This event is family-friendly and free to the public. From 1 until 2 p.m., KBOO will hold its annual meeting and elections for the Board of Directors. All are welcome to participate as KBOO discusses the accomplishments of 2023 and looks ahead to 2024. Join KBOO and celebrate. Saturday, September 23rd, noon until 10 p.m. on Southeast 8th Avenue between Ankeny and Ash. Family-friendly and free to the public. For more information, visit www.kboo.fm slash birthday55. We hope to see you on September 23rd. You are listening to KBOO 90.7 FM in Portland. You're listening to KBOO Portland 90.7 FM. The time is 8.02 a.m. Next up is Wednesday Talk Radio with Paul Rowland.
Yeah, I'm so bored with the USA, but what can I do, they ask. What can we do with this oh-so-out-of-control behemoth for so long? Anyway, I'm Paul Rowan. This is Wednesday Talk Radio. That was The Clash from their 1977 self-titled debut album. Can you believe it's been almost 50 years since The Clash started? It's shocking. Anyway... Um, that's, uh, that sort of sets the tone, maybe, I guess. <clears throat> so today, uh, two months, almost exactly two months after I had one of my guests, uh, Cody Urban, on this very program to talk about the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit, which happened pretty much most of the month of August in Seattle. Uh, we're going to find out uh, from him and two other guests what happened uh, during the uh, organizing and actions uh, against APEC, the People's Summit. And we're going to look forward to uh, San Francisco coming up in November, uh, another big uh, summit, APEC summit meeting, ministerial meeting. So uh, let me in- introduce my guests again, uh, Cody Urban of the No to APEC National Steering Committee. And we've got Johnny Olson member of Migrante Portland and represented on the, representative on the Bayan Regional Council of Oregon. And he can tell us about what Bayan is. And Katie Comfort, U.S. Coordinator of the International Women's Alliance. I guess I didn't allow you to, to attach your, your voices to those, but uh, good morning, Cody. Good morning, Paul. Good to be back. And good morning, Johnny. Morning. And good morning, Katie. Good morning. And so uh, let's uh, just get right into it. Uh, Cody, uh, talk a little bit about, so, you know, once again, explain what the heck is this APEC, this very benign sounding organization, and and why are we all up in arms against them? So benign. First of all, it's wild to think that it was almost two months, like you said, since I was last on here talking about it. I feel like so much has happened since then, but also... When we were up in Seattle, it was like things were moving so quickly because these almost benign, like you're saying, sounding uh, meetings of government officials and business leaders, it it seems so boring when you think about it. But in reality, so many significant decisions are made so fast that impact all of our lives that we have no say in. So just to kind of recap for folks who listened to the show a couple months ago, The Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, or APEC, is a free trade uh, institution, groups of 21 different uh, member economies. So-called free trade. So-called free trade, exactly. Free for big business, keeping everything less free for the rest of us. And it was formed in 1989, and every year it meets, it meets to work to establish different kind of laws. It, it, It seems even more benign because these decisions that are made at APEC are non-binding. It's not quite like the World Trade Organization or WTO that folks shut down in 1999 in Seattle, where uh, all decisions are binding that governments have to take up. In APEC, it seemed more like just a conversation. We meet, it's almost like a business club where people, you know, quote unquote, share best practices. If you go to APEC's website, that's all they talk about. But in reality, what's really important is the kind of power that some countries have over others in this institution, in particular, the United States. And so the U.S. has constantly used APEC to push its own agenda and almost dangle investment and foreign aid over these countries to say, well, you don't have to take up what these, what our um, policies are of, you know, allowing uh, more access to big business coming in and investing in your country, allowing for more big land grabbing deals. But if you don't, we're going to hold back, um, you know, more loans to your country. We're going to hold back more aid. So it's almost like a hostage taking. Kind of like the IMF and structural readjustment. It's totally. This is a complete Trojan horse for those kind of structural adjustment policies, um, which refers to... um, investment firms coming in and saying, we'll give you money for your economy, but only if you privatize your industries, which gives the people actually less control over it. So those of us in Portland join people in Seattle and actually people from all over the country and even a few from other countries of the world uh, where we had our 
uh, People Summit against APEC. This was on July 29th, the first day that the APEC ministerial meetings happened in Seattle. We held our first day of actions against them. And so it started with our People Summit at the University of Washington, where we had Throughout the day, just over 400 people came through this. We had speakers from all over. We had our keynote speaker was Eni Lestari of the International Migrants Alliance, which was one of the organizations that took part in planning this, the coalition of organizations that planned all these activities. It was the Pacific Northwest People Over Profit Coalition. And so, um, uh, one of those orgs, the International Migrants Alliance, actually brought their chairperson um, from Hong Kong. She is an Indonesian uh, domestic worker and migrant organizer in Hong Kong and around the travels around the world organizing uh, migrants to fight for their rights. And so she opened by giving us kind of a crash course in Apex history and how migrants all over the world are impacted by these policies, you know, making it harder for migrants to um, go through legal means to migrate, but also making it harder for them to stay home because their jobs are being lost, their lands are being taken. But the most important thing, and I heard this from so many people who came through, is that the most important thing she said is that without migrant workers, capitalism would not exist. I wanna emphasize that again. Without migrant workers, capitalism and our world, business as usual as we know it, would not exist because they carry the, the economy on their backs. Well, if you think about it, I mean, uh, <clears throat> slavery was a, a, the most perverse form of a migrant labor. For sure, that, is, that, is the, that was the start of it. And we, we can see throughout hundreds of years, not just oppression against you know, uh, workers, um, and starting, of course, with the slave trade, but we see even starting from then too, from slave rebellions all the hundreds of years, you see um, migrants and workers struggle against their oppressors and exploiters. And that's the theme that carried us throughout this People Summit. We had a panel of different um, organizers that uh, take part in the labor and also national liberation movements, talking about how not just APEC but other free trade deals that the U.S. is trying to steamroll through the APEC process, the most important being um, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, or IPEF, which if listeners are familiar with the TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership, it's kind of a rehash of that that's going to give more access to U.S. Uh, and its friendly companies in the Asia-Pacific. Um, so this panel talked all about how the people that they organize from their communities are not going to um, benefit from these deals. And what they'll benefit for is a new kind of system uh, to fight for. So, well, we can get more into that um, for sure. And uh, uh, maybe just before we go to Johnny and talk about <clears throat> what he has, his his part in the, in the organizing and the actions. So you felt it basically was a... I don't know, you can say successful, but you felt it was a, a positive experience that it, it, it built it build, it built some movement there? It definitely did, and here's where what might be the good transition leading into Johnny, because what I'll say finish by saying here is that the this first day of workshops, of discussions, of movement building, talking about getting us all on the same page about what APEC is, what so-called free trade is, and how we can fight back. It led us into our second day, which was a mass mobilization, a giant gathering in, the, in a park with, again, organizations from Portland, Seattle, and others around the world. And then we had a nearly 500-person march through the streets of Seattle. We marched up to the doors of the Seattle Convention Center where the APEC meeting was finishing. We actually had a makeshift stage that we had set up behind their chartered bus. So they were waiting to go back to their hotel and they were, we forced them to stay there watching us, listening to us. Um, and we even sent a delegation of trade union leaders with a petition signed of thousands of workers saying, we don't want IPEF, we don't want the APEC deals here. Will you listen to us? And they went to attempt to deliver it to the APEC ministers who were right there, and the police blocked them. So we tried to ask them nicely, 
Uh, they didn't listen, and so we came to their door. We forced them to listen, and then we went back, and then we determined throughout this whole month of August when the APEC ministers would be meeting, we would be taking every opportunity possible to um, hold actions, to disrupt where we could, and just make our voices heard. And that's where I think Johnny's uh, leadership in one of those actions really shines strong. Well, before we get into the details of that, John, just talk about what uh, what Migrante Portland is and, and what buy-in is. Uh, yeah, uh, so Migrante Portland is a Filipino migrant workers organization um, and uh, connected to that, it's also part of buy-in, which is uh, an alliance of a bunch of different uh, uh sectors of uh, Philippine uh, society um, so that you have different organizations representing youth, workers, women, teachers, government workers, uh, indigenous people, uh, uh, peasants as well in the Philippines, farmers and farm workers. Uh, so it's uh, all, the, all that to say is that's what we call like it's a multi-sectoral alliance and really uh, uplifting the uh, needs and issues and uh, really uh, pushing uh, for all those different uh, sectors to fight against uh, basically the uh, uh, and fight for change in the Philippines uh, but yeah I, I think uh, basically broadly what we what we stand for is uh, national democracy in the Philippines um, national meaning um you know free from u.s imperialism and uh foreign uh, businesses trying to interfere and exploit the philippines for its natural resources and cheap labor um and then democratic meaning because uh, with those uh foreign business interests uh also comes a consequence of landlessness for farmers peasants and indigenous people alike um, so trying to advocate and fight for the basic uh, democratic demand in the Philippines, which is the need for land and land reform and giving land back to uh, the landless in the Philippines. Um, and of course, there's a, a, a large Philippine community in Portland, all up and down the West Coast and, and other, uh, other places in the United States because exactly of the kind of policies that you're fighting against, right? Yeah, so it, it leads to a huge... Uh, force uh, migration uh, uh, Filipinos overseas. Uh, so Philippines has a population of around 110 million people and about 10 to 11 million of those uh, live overseas. Wow. Yeah. It, it, and it's, yeah, it's because of that uh, problem with like landlessness and exploitation of uh, the Philippines. And I do want to ask you, it just occurred to me that um, to me, the Philippines, <coughs> you know, the, not on the radar of a lot of people. I, I actually happened to uh, live there for five years when I was young, but that's another story that we won't get into today. But uh, so I'm always kind of keyed into it. And it, it just seems to have had a, a kind of a con continuity of real ferment, real social ferment, whereas maybe more than other, some other, obviously, you know, Vietnam uh, <clears throat> had a very strong movement in other countries. But anyway, there se seems to be a strong continuity, and that sort of seems to carry over to the United States and other places where <clears throat> there are Filipino communities. But before we you know, go back into that, um, talk about uh, your role in organizing for what happened in Seattle and, and what, what you all did there. Yeah, so for Bayan, uh, Oregon and Bayan, Seattle, we came together um, and uh, along with uh, folks from uh, Pacific Northwest People Over Profit Coalition, uh, we really focused and honed in on the energy ministerial meetings. Um, and so these are like some of the, these are like energy ministers from different countries, different politicians and uh, business folks uh, really, uh, you know, the, it, it sounds nice because a lot of what they say is like pushing for green energy, uh, create a resilient, sustainable future for all, reducing carbon emissions, zero carbon pollution, environmentally friendly. Um, but, you know, some of their, uh, some of the biggest backers of uh, APEC uh, are corporations like Exxon, Chevron, and Boeing. 
and you know it how can you say you're uh you're focusing on green energy and uh clean energy but when you have some of the largest uh, dirty energy producers uh backing what you do well one one little hand does that but one huge hand does the rest (laughs) (laughs) yeah so that's what that's what they were meeting about and in particular the so for buy-in uh we were really trying to highlight uh this uh uh greenwashing of uh you know sustainable energy and what that means uh particularly for the for the philippines but also just for people uh all over the asia pacific and all over the world because these uh you know these decisions that they make here at the uh apec uh, meetings uh, have global implications uh so one of the big things uh that we were speaking out against was uh one of the solutions uh, to addressing uh, reducing carbon emissions was uh, the push for nuclear energy. And in particular, the uh, Nuclear Energy Corporation that's really trying to, uh, you know, uh, study and investigate uh, the Philippines as a potential place to invest is New Scale Corporation, which is actually uh based here in portland and they also have help from osu or oregon state university down in corvallis with some of the research uh for their project in particular uh small modular reactors which i'll uh refer to as smrs just to abbreviate um but yeah so a big push for small modular reactor uh development in the philippines um and it was all part of uh Marcos uh, Jr., who's the current president of the Philippines, uh, it was, this was all, uh, you know, negotiated and discussed uh, going back to May 2023 when he met with Biden to really firm up uh, the relations between the U.S. and uh, the Philippines. And part of that is uh, signing on to IPEF, uh, which is the Indo-Pacific uh, Economic Framework. And part of the, the, that agreement of IPEF is uh, discussions around energy. There were other things that were discussed related to transportation, infrastructure, military, but the big one we wanted to highlight because it's local to us and it, it affects all of us here in the Northwest and also all the Filipinos uh, back in the Philippines uh, is we really wanted to highlight uh, New Scale and its relation to this. Um, as a matter of fact, one of the founding members of New Scale is uh, Shinji Fujino, who sits on the board of directors uh, for New Scale and he's also he's also like helped establish the framework for apex so for what it is now uh he 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 played a role in uh helping to establish that and now he's uh, behind new scale which uh is funded by the u.s department of energy and the state department of the u.s um so the there's been a lot of research done on new scale from like Stanford University, uh, proceedings of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, University of British Columbia on their small modular reactors or the SMRs. And so new scale is really trying to be at the forefront of this promotion of nuclear energy uh, through these uh, small modular reactors. And... Um, this and they they've been around since 2000 but uh none of uh, the none of their technology has been tested they've built up uh smrs in uh different parts of the world but and they're uh and some are like uh ready for testing but none of it's been proven but the research that's been done on it uh from these different universities uh you know they show that they're actually potentially more dangerous than uh, standard uh, nuclear reactors. And uh, the, they're, the, they also have a tendency to produce more radioactive waste and they're less efficient than uh, current uh, uh, standardized, uh, standard size uh, uh, nuclear reactors. Um, the other thing too is, uh, yeah, so it's just less efficient, produces more radioactive waste um and then less energy efficient um now is that because of like economies of scale the size i imagine the inefficiency yeah i think for i uh i think from what i understand it's like it it just uh 
for for its size and what it produces it just it's it's just much more uh wasteful and actually not a very efficient energy source and uh the some of the studies uh done in the philippines and also uh through some of these uh different uh universities uh, pointed out like the uh you know just how uh, how expensive it is too um like uh it costs uh, like $60 per megawatt hour to produce energy uh produce nuclear energy from these small modular reactors while um the cost uh, for like solar and wind is 20 to 40 dollars per megawatt hour um and then I think the 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 re, they're being sold as actually because nuclear energy the, the the mega plants have this terrible reputation deserve reputation for being incredibly expensive and having massive you know billions of dollars of cost overruns for their and years late and they're I guess the the argument for these is is uh, against what you're saying is that they're they're actually they they take they're, they're quicker to build and and cheaper but you're saying that's not true obviously yeah it's not cheaper it's more wasteful um and and that's uh just so i'm not getting too into the weeds on yeah, yeah. new scale uh just to bring it back to why we were there yeah is uh, we were we were there protesting uh these decisions being made at the energy ministerial meetings because we see the impacts that it would have on the filipino people um it you know, uh, most people uh, earn less than uh, $9 a, a day in the Philippines, and uh, the living wage is $18 a day. So people are making less than half of what the living wage is in the Philippines, and it's an expensive form of energy. So and basically you're saying it's just another form of corporate exploita exploitation, which already is rampant in the Philippines. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so we were pointing out uh, at the uh, mobilization just uh, some of the, uh, uh, yeah, that, that this just isn't a good uh, deal for the Philippines. Also, the nuclear waste uh, is uh, weapons grade, and um, yeah, and and I think uh, considering the rising tensions between the U.S. and China, uh, developing uh, nuclear technology that has the capacity for weapons. Uh, uh, yeah, the, the capacity to uh, produce uh, nuclear weapons and considering the tensions between China and the U.S. and the, its proxi the, the proximity of the Philippines to uh, China, it, it's just it, it's concerning because it's basically putting us in the middle of that rising conflict and potential war between uh, China and the U.S. Well, let, me, let me just put a, a bracket on. We'll get back to you in a few minutes. We're about halfway through the program. This is a Wednesday Talk Radio. I am your host, Paul Rowland, on a weekly basis, and I have three guests talking about the uh, Asia-Pacific uh, Asia Economic Cooperation uh, organization and the summit they had in Seattle last August, where my three guests, uh, Cody Urban, uh, Johnny, what's your last name again? Olson. Olson, how could I forget that? And Katie Comfort. Um, we're at and helped organize the uh, opposition. But uh, I just want to give the number. Uh, we'll give Katie a chance to give their spiel here. And, uh, but then you can, you can get on stack if you want, if you have something to say, ask. 503-231-8187. This is a, a public forum a talk show, one of the few uh, locally produced uh, in the Portland area. So... We hope you appreciate it, and we're coming up on our pledge drive in just a few days, and our block party on Saturday, down here, uh, just uh, just down the street, Eighth Avenue, uh, two blocks off of or a block off of Burnside. Come and join us then. I think it starts around two in the afternoon, goes till about ten. Anyway, let's uh, go to Katie. So uh, talk about the uh, International Women's Alliance. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Uh, so the International Women's Alliance was founded in 2010. We're a global alliance of grassroots women's organizations, uh, institutions, networks, coalitions, who understand that women are a key part of the overall anti-imperialist struggle. Um, and so our two main campaigns uh, for the last 13 years have been Women Against War, recognizing that military violence um, and war and uh, militarized conflict are the number one perpetrator of violence against women and the cause of um, 
like cultural violence and everything as well. And then most recently, we also uh, uh, launched our Women Over Profit campaign, recognizing the impact of uh, global capitalist exploitation against uh, against women being um, the reason why women don't have uh, equality in society, um, and that it's really a class issue uh, for a majority of women around the world. So maybe give an idea of who some of the member organizations are. Yeah, for sure. So uh, we currently have two major global regions. One is Europe, where we have about 12 to 15 members, and the other one is the Asia-Pacific region, um, where we have 30 to 40 members, um, a lot in the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, India, Pakistan, um, really all throughout the uh, Asian subcontinent. Um, and then we also have a handful of members in the U.S. and Canada as well and are starting to um, recruit members across Latin America. And what was your role up in Seattle? Yes. So um, as part of APEX ministerial meetings in Seattle, they always kind of have one uh, ministerial group that meets for a longer period of time. And so it was the policy partnership on women in the economy that was meeting for five days up in Seattle. Um, An apex framework when it comes to women, um, they launched this in 2011, but they really talk about women in this context of being a quote-unquote untapped resource for economic development, Um, almost as though we're like something trapped that needs to be uh, released, right, by corporations. Um, But like Cody said earlier, it really follows the trend of uh, being a Trojan horse, So there's all these incredible platitudes about in the next five to 10 years, APEC will help bring women into full equality in society through these initiatives. Um, But the initiatives that they've funded so far have been like, um, what's women's role in automation in factories, which at the end of the day is actually going to cost 60% of women who work in manufacturing their jobs in these countries. Um, And the major issue too was across those five days, press was only really allowed in the room for about an hour each day. Uh, There were no civil society organizations or organizations representing women on the ground in these 21 member economies invited. Um, And really, it was unlimited corporate access for corporations to have access to these ministers who represent, supposedly represent the interests of women and minorities in their countries. Um, So on one hand, uh, during these meetings, you have Biden's uh, Gender Policy Council, headed by Jen Klein, who has a background in the um, State Department. She was like, led under Secretary Clinton, um, a pretty big uh, supporter of war and violence against women, who's leading this gender policy council talking about how the U.S. is this uh, shining example of women's rights, even though under Biden, I don't think I need to reiterate the issues that women and uh, gender minorities have faced in this country in the last uh, two to three years, right? Um, loss of abortion, all these bills, like really limiting our rights. Well, you, you can't peg that on Biden. but Right. I mean... <laughs> Yeah, but the administration in a lot of ways hasn't done what it said it set out said it was setting out to do in terms of bringing women into equality in this country. Um, on the other hand, so you have the Gender Policy Council on one hand, and on the other hand, there's all these representatives of these APEC member economies um, who are really talking about how to get women um, jobs from like U.S.-based corporations, rather than acknowledging a majority of women in their countries are landless, they're experiencing very high rates of violence and poverty, um, and the solutions are actually quite clear when you talk to women on the ground about what they need, right? They need um, the ability to actually farm on their land and not be forced off of their land because of uh, mining projects or foreign corporations coming in to build factories. They need to be able to access resources to provide for their families, and they have to need to have reliable um, uh, employment as well. But none of those things are achieved by APEC. Um, so what we were able to do while we were there, um, we found out APEC was meeting in the Sheraton Hotel in downtown Seattle. We actually made it onto the second floor where they were having lunch. So we were able to disrupt uh, their lunch break. Um, There were about 20 people who made it onto that floor and started chanting and giving speeches, really making sure they knew that women here in the US are not happy that APEC's meeting and talking about these uh, ways to continue exploiting women um, across the Asia Asia Pacific region. Um, And then we made it into the lobby where we had even more, I think about 30 of us stood up and did a flash mob once they joined us. We were able to do quite a disruptive action during the APEC meetings. Um, Security was really not sure how we made it in, but uh, I think we were pretty proud of ourselves um, for making it in as far as we did. Um, And then when we went outside and joined, um, I think about 60 to 70 more uh, protesters, we were able to actually hold our own um, People's Women in the Economy Forum where we heard from 
uh, women who work in agriculture, social work, um, health care, some migrant women, um, union leaders, stuff like that. And they were able to really point to the key things that women actually need, right, which um, I think we can see patterns in this country and across the Asia Pacific region where um, services are continually being pulled back. Um, public funds are being invested in private corporations that aren't meeting people's needs. And the real solution that we need is um, just fundamentally women's needs need to be prioritized over the profits of these major corporations like Microsoft, um, Boeing, Facebook, all of those different things um, that are really being prioritized in these regions. So again, um, this is a uh, call-in, listener call-in show, and the number to call in is 503-231-8187. We have three very in, well-informed and active guests uh, involved in various different initiatives, organizing movements, and so if you'd like to engage with them, please call in. So, you know, it just occurred to me, um, we certainly talked about it, Cody, two months ago when you were on the you know, the echo of Seattle 1999, you mentioned it in your, your initial remarks. Um, but it seems to me, uh, and I don't know if this is something any of you are really prepared to speak to, you know, there was uh, certainly not the largest, you know, anti-capitalist uh, mobilization in world history at that time, but it, it was something, you know, it joined forces with a lot of sectors, including some of the sectors you're talking about now, um, in in the Asian uh, region, you know, Walden Bellows sort of came to prominence from the Philippines in that movement, the the movement for global justice or anti-globalization movement. It, it connected up with the anti-sweatshop movement, um, a lot of different areas. The you know, sort of the global environmental movement. Certainly, in movements that I was involved with, uh, environmental movements, forest protection was a big part of that. And, you know, it achieved some, certainly some public visibility uh, because of the shutdown the one, that one day there. And, you know, just uh, all the tear gas flying and all the brutalizing by the police and the subsequent, uh, you know, issues around police brutality that came out, et cetera, et cetera. So it gave a lot of visibility, but of course we know that 9-11 <laughs> sort of blew a lot of that out of the water, took a lot of the steam, in addition to other factors. But just seems, I guess, a, a long way of saying it, it seems like the, the corporate forces have only retrenched since, and it's just sort of, and sort of the whole idea of being anti-capitalist, although it's coming back now, certainly after 2008, you know, with Bernie Sanders, there definitely seems to be more of a ability to talk about anti-capitalism and socialism. And now, you know, with the auto worker strike. So I don't know, maybe we are coming back around, but it seems like we had a long period where the corporate forces were really able to totally gain the upper hand. Or am I wrong about that? I think the best way to summarize the trend you're talking about is that at least how it impacts us now is that labor organizers, anti-globalization organizers were faced with a lot of big challenges in how the world is changing and how the world has changed so much since 1999. Um, 1999, during the 90s, that decade after the end of the the Cold War, when it seemed like capitalism was uh, announcing its victory and like people weren't ready to have that you know they were there was massive movements against that that culminated in the battle of seattle and i think because the world trade organization which was formed in um the mid 90s with its kind of trophy free trade deal nafta north north american uh free trade agreement that this was changing the game this was the really the first kind of shot of the free trade behemoth that you're talking about at the, at the beginning of this, Paul. Um, and so... Neoliberalism, as it, they call it. Exactly. Know. And so I think that there was this this shock that pushed so many people, in particular in the U.S., against this. Because the one thing I'll also say is that while we're seeing some dips in the, the movement in the U.S., the movement has not gone away throughout the rest of the world. In fact, APEC wherever it has gone, has been protested in every country and was even shut down in 2019 in Chile. People fought back and actually got it canceled. So I think in the U.S., 
after the 90s, after the Battle of Seattle. And of course, 9-11, and therefore the beginning of the War on Terror, played this big role of cementing in the American mind. You know, if you are an activist, you are a terrorist. This fear of terrorism that spread everywhere throughout our country and still stays with us today. I mean, every single president um, from Bush, Obama, Trump, and Biden has had a kind of different flavor of counterterrorism program. And, and of course, in Atlanta, they labeled the anti-cop city a domestic terrorist, for and, crying out loud. And what's so wild about that is that the, the specific counterterrorism of the Biden administration that came out with January 6th, very much in our mind, it says if you read the strategy for countering domestic terrorism by the White House, it specifically says this is the first counterterrorism program to ever uh, target white nationalists because of how much white nationalists came out and supported Trump. But what is it doing in practice? Atlanta and Stop Cop City is the perfect example of how these talks by, you know, liberal sounding governments about fighting white nationalism, it's actually going, it's targeting one of the most broadest anti-racist movements in our country today and charging people with terrorism. There's organi organizers in Tampa, Florida, the Tampa Five, if folks look that up, students who are fighting back against Ron DeSantis's education policies. They were just holding a protest and the police tackled them and then they got charged with assaulting officers and now they're facing five to ten years in prison just for protesting. So I think that this war on terror machine created this psy war in the US to try to kill organizing. And then at the same time, we see different kind of social realities coming out like social media, which it makes it, it, makes it easier for people to relate online, um, less encouraging to get out into the streets and see people. So I think that as organizers, we're contending with a lot of these issues. But at the same time, 1999 was at a time of crisis. At the, the 2008, just before Occupy Wall Street, that was a major time of crisis. And then we saw a similar battles of Seattle at different parts of the country in Occupy. And that died down too. I think, but each of these movements carried with it memories and legacies and strategies and tactics that we've been using all since. I think that this year we're seeing, you know, another crisis has been, you know, really picking up these last couple of years. And with this new election coming around the, 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 the bend, this is going to be one of the most significant elections, I think, in U.S. history, not just because of the level of crisis economically we find ourselves in, but this massive war drive that the U.S. is pushing us to so, against China uh, and other countries. Um, these free trade deals are a sign of military rivalry. And what our movement against APEC has done, it hasn't looked as big as Battle of Seattle, but it is getting ready to kind of take up the torch at this, I think, a new level of upsurge in people's movements. Well, it's we, <clears throat> that we desperately need. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people are really encouraged by the uh, the uh, auto workers uh, uh, uh movement here uh and, and some of the rhetoric has really really surprised me i guess uh, i don't know it seems like there's a level of of you know really open anti-capitalist rhetoric amongst some of the leaders and organizers but anyway i i, I bet that uh, biden is going to sell them out in the end but we'll see um anyway um let's get back to jo johnny olson uh, again uh, with migrante portland and uh, buy-in and uh, I don't know, I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I get, maybe just get back to what I said before about the and how the Philippines is, has been really a hotbed, both of really overt revolutionary movement for a long period of time that has also gone uh, under the gun of uh, anti-terrorism by successive uh, Philippine regimes and with uh, assistance from the United States, of course. But uh, also just, you know, various civil society sectors. There's, there seems to me, and, and you know way more about than I do, that Philippines has always been a very active, and I, and I see the Filipino community in, in, in the United States, or what I know as being very active too, seems to be related to that. I don't know. Am I off base with that? Um, no, you're, you're not off base with that. I mean, uh, there's, uh, there, especially with like... Uh, uh, 
with buy-in and the national democratic orgs uh we're all throughout like the u.s um and you know uh there's and and i think that's what's great about it is we have uh our different uh sectoral concerns whether you're worker uh women or youth uh student um whatever uh sector uh whatever aspect of civil society you belong to uh with uh what's so great about it is is you know we have a you know united uh um, viewpoint and analysis on what the uh, root problems are for the Filipino people, uh, some of which I talked about uh, when I was d- describing what Migrante Portland and uh, Bayan is. Um, I think uh, to kind of uh, just to kind of highlight some of that uh, struggle, I, I also want to take a minute to uh, also it, it's kind of related to new scale, but uh, also has to do with like a very recent uh, passing away of uh, uh, Kuyalala, uh, or uh, his full name is uh, Carolyn uh, Lala Fanagiel. Um, but yeah, uh, so part of the the issue with new scale is uh, if it gets built, it it'll lead to landlessness and driving. Uh, you know, peasants and farmers off of uh, land and, you know, just further exacerbating the problem of landlessness and poverty in the Philippines, forcing more people to migrate overseas to find work. Um, And I think related to that, when we think of Kuyalala, uh, he was, uh, he's part of that, all those things you were talking about with like state terrorism um, and, uh, fascist attacks on people and in particular environmental like land defenders uh you know the philippines is one of the most uh, dangerous places in the world for uh, environmental activists um but yeah he he passed away like yeah just like a few days ago if I, if i'm remembering correctly but uh but Kuyalala, to talk about him um and to also highlight just kind of the state terrorism and fascist uh, attacks on the Filipino people. He was a uh, indigenous uh, Luman leader, an activist, and artist. He was the secretary general of PASACA, which is uh, a confederation of different Luman organizations in southern Mindanao. He came out here to the U.S. back in 2016 uh, to speak on the militarization and foreign mining uh, exploits being done on uh, indigenous uh, Lumad land. Uh, I think for the for us in this room, I think that was like a lot of uh, like our first uh, exposure to that problem and our uh, first uh, encounter with understanding deeply like with what's going on in the Philippines and how that relates uh, to the struggles of people all around the world. Uh, but uh, yeah. He uh, he uh, he has a long history of uh, fighting for uh, the Lumad people, his people, um, and uh, really uh, trying to expose uh, the militarization, the uh, extrajudicial killings, um, and the displacement of Lumad uh, in southern Mindanao. Um, but he passed away. Uh, he died in an, an encounter between the. Uh, it's uh, New People's Army and the Armed Forces of the Philippines. Um, because the conditions are so terrible in the Philippines, it's actually led to, uh, you know, different groups of people taking up arms. Uh, you know, you have uh, the government of the Republic of the Philippines and the Armed Forces of the Philippines fighting with uh, the New People's Army and the Communist Party of the Philippines. You also have, uh, I think it's, uh, I hope I'm getting the acronym right, but I think the Moro Islamic uh, Liberation Front that's also been uh, fighting for its own uh, self-determination and autonomy from the Philippine state as well. But a lot of these issues are driven by the uh, conditions of the Philippines, the foreign exploitation, the... Uh, extraction of natural resources, uh, these corporations taking advantage of cheap labor 
and the funding of like the armed forces of the Philippines through, uh, well, in particular, the, it's called the uh, Joint United States Military Advisory Group, you know, that also directly funds uh, the AFP and the uh, Philippine National Police. Uh, and yeah, using U.S. tax dollars to fund uh, harassment, displacement, and uh, the extrajudicial killings of people like Kuyalala. And and was it tr- is it true that Cody that Kuyalala was actually on this program? Kuyalala spoke. I believe you interviewed him back in 2016 when he came here to the United States. <clears throat> That's really shocking. And he, he but if you, if you do actually want to. You can actually find that on our archives if you want to find out more about that particular aspect of what they're they're talking about the Lumad being the indigenous people there of uh, of Mindanao, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that really got to me. I, I remember him, and he was. Uh, I think I believe he actually uh, uh, performed a song on this program, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken. Really wonderful wonderful person. If you met him, you would see he never stopped smiling. He never stopped laughing. And I think the important thing that Johnny is pointing to is that and something about Kuyalala and many organiz- organizers throughout the Philippines and around the world, especially in the global south, is, you know, to build a broad movement against these neoliberal forces we're talking about around APEC, you need to see what the root causes of of all people suffering is. And Kuyalala, you know, defended and fought for people who were holding protests, who were holding uh, land occupations of, you know, peasants' land that they've been kicked off of by landlords. And even, you know, acknowledging that the people that Johnny are talking about who take up arms, he he would say it over and over again, even with that bright smile on his face, hating the conflict, but saying, acknowledging that it's really, if you if you don't like the conflict, you gotta fight back against the imperialist interests and, you know, saying that you have to, no matter what, support people who are fighting for their liberation. And you can do that in the streets, you can do that in the countryside, and we all have to link together. That was the message we all got from him. Well, we're, we're coming down to the last, uh, boy, about eight minutes of the program. We have not had any callers yet. <laughs> so if you out there have just been dying to join in the conversation. I urge you to do it pretty much right now. Otherwise, it'll be too late. 503-231-8187. 503-231-8187 is the number to call. And once again, I'll just put a plug in. You've probably heard it, certainly heard it. We've uh, uh, been uh, having announcements for a couple weeks now about our block party coming up this Saturday. A chance to uh, actually get back into our studios as well as being outside uh listening to the music and eating the food and and whatever you're going to be doing there. Uh, It's going to be a fun time. So come on by this coming Saturday, uh, starting, I believe, at 2 o'clock, if I don't have that wrong. Noon. Thank you, Ty. Noon. I was just uh, lackadaisical there. Um, And uh, we used to have this thing called Subvert the Fun Drive, which is kind of like the week or two before the fun drive, encouraging people to uh, go to kboo.fm and... uh, renew your membership or, uh, you know, become a new member. So, you know, maybe we can even cut short the membership drive if enough people do that. That's why it's called Subvert the Membership Drive. I'm not sure we're formally <laughs> doing that this year, but I'm inviting you to do I that. I love it. <laughs> Go to kboo.fm and uh, click on that donate. And, uh, yeah, become a more uh, continue to be or become an active member of our radio community. And again, I'm uh, speaking about uh, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Organization, benign-sounded, as we've said repeatedly, but with a a serious uh, uh, capitalist agenda against the interests of the working class and the people in general. And uh, we're talking about it with Cody Urban and Johnny Olson and Katie Comfort. So, Katie, I noticed that you actually gave a closing keynote there at the People's Summit. That's a, a big thing. Well, you probably already talked about what you talked about, but is there anything specific that you remember from that? Yeah, I think really emphasizing what I did uh, in what I just recapped, but just uh, APEC as a free trade organization, um, talking about women as an untapped resource, really uh, uses women as a smokescreen um, in pushing corporate interests. Um, and also like, subjects women to uh, intense violence. Um, It 
really connected back to what had been happening through the whole day in the workshops and the keynote speaker at the beginning showing that capitalism actually relies on that exploitation of women. Um, but the other really important thing that we wanted to emphasize in that closing keynote was that the fight against APEC continues, right? So the reason why EWA has really taken up this campaign against APEC is knowing a majority of our membership are in countries that are impacted by these decisions. Um, there are women on the ground who are regularly fighting back and organizing against the decisions made by groups like APEC. Um, but that we also have continued opportunities this year um, to actually fight back. So if you missed out in Seattle, um, there's uh, going to be another summit and protest during the um, APEC leaders meeting down in San Francisco. And that one um, is a bit different than what was happening in Seattle because it's actually the global leaders um, like the presidents and uh, quote unquote elected officials of these countries um, who are going to be in San Francisco to really uh, kind of wrap up the year long meetings that APEC's been holding here in the US. Um, so we had a small local coalition between um, Oregon and Washington that planned everything up in Seattle. And we actually have an international coalition now, the NOTA APEC coalition, that's formed planning um, the actions that'll be happening in San Francisco November 11th and 12th. Um, and if folks want to find out more, we do have a link tree um, and I'll have Cody give a little bit more information on that but before he does yes. we do actually have a caller I just want to say so that San Francisco San Francisco Chronicle had a headline saying San Francisco is frantically preparing to host its biggest international event since 1945 is the city ready and is the city That's ready the for what's going to no, happen? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> so, but let's go to, we do have uh, Janet online. So give us your uh, quick uh, question or comment. I just want to say what a compelling discussion you're having. I was fortunate that I inherited a teepee up here in Mount Hood and I've got it all set up for like four years. But the fact that this cop city thing is coming down and, and all the people, and so many people in the world that, are speaking out about um, social justice and all these topics that you're talking about are getting slammed big time that it's really so important to to rise up and put our fists up and and uh, speak out like this so i really appreciate these endeavors thank you so much all right well great to hear you get good reception up there in your teepee all right uh so let's uh cody maybe you could uh, round it out uh, since we only got a few minutes left sure thing what we've said this entire time from the start of our Pacific Northwest People Over Profit campaign all the way till now going to San Francisco is wherever APEC goes, the people fight back. So if you all want to get involved in fighting back against the APEC um, Heads of State Summit and also the CEO Summit, they're having an own summit for the CEOs of the main APEC businesses like Boeing, Microsoft, UP UPS, Cargill, a lot of the companies Johnny named. Um, where they get to give their own little orders for what the, the U.S. politicians can, can give um, for their investments. If you want to get involved in protesting all of this and coming down to San Francisco with us, we have a link tree. So visit L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash N-O two number two A-P-E-C. That's link tree slash Nota APEC, and maybe we could get that on the, the page for this on the yes, website. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, we uh, probably could have done that before, but we can certainly do that after. Um, yeah, so uh, anybody, Johnny, any any final thoughts? Putting you on the spot again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, I think, yeah, thank you for giving us a opportunity to talk about uh, these issues related to APEC. You know, this is, uh, I know for me, I, I talked a lot about the Philippines specifically, but um, yeah, really, uh, uh, you know, going to the mobilization and the summit and then looking forward to November, um, you know, uh, it's a, it's really inspiring being uh, with a group of people, uh, a large group of people that see the need for uh, systemic change all throughout the, the world and see big picture the the needs of uh of uh, people uh you know struggling just to make it day to day um and you know while like for me my focus is the philippines uh really it's uh it's for everyone you know uh, for everyone who's like uh, uh struggling or toiling and uh yeah so it was uh so thank you for uh having us on here to 
talk about these things. And um, uh, Marcos Jr. will be at uh, uh-huh. the APEC uh, Summit. So definitely you can expect uh, some Filipinos to be present there. Um, we'll be raising our voices and uh, doing what we can to uh, address uh, the, the issues that he's just further worsening for the Philippines. Son of the infamous dictator, Ferdinand Marcos. That's right. Yes. And I want to say real quick, if anyone listening wants to meet us up in person this week, come to Pioneer Square at South Southwest 6th and Yamhill on Thursday tomorrow for our International Peace Day rally. We'll be talking about these connections between free trade and conflict and how to fight What for time peace. is that? That's at 6 p.m. at Southeast 6th and Yamhill this Thursday awesome. tomorrow. Well, that's the last word. we got to go. Thank all three of you. Appreciate it. And that's uh, signing off for uh, Wednesday Talk Radio. Thanks, Ty, for running the board. Bye, everybody. are tuned to listener-supported community radio, KBOO Portland. KBOO Community Radio is hiring a full-time development director. This position leads all fundraising campaigns in alignment with KBOO's mission, goals, and policies. The development director works closely with management and staff to identify funding priorities and create major donor campaigns, capital campaigns, and grant writing. More info can be found at kboo.fm hiring. We will begin reviewing applications on August 7th, and the position will remain open until filled. KBOO is an equal opportunity employer. This is Medea Benjamin. I hope you listen to Community Radio, KBOO 90.7. Welcome to Negotiating Dramatic Events with Grace Growing Medicine Reed.